You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 8, verse 19. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature." They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut them in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. 
the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of a hundred and fifty days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and, on, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the ground of the from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off of the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Well, please be seated. It's certainly good to be with you all this morning. I'm Tanner Blosser. I serve as a pastor of Student and Family Ministries over at South Canyon Baptist Church, and we have the privilege and the opportunity to be your sending church here for Redeeming Grace Church, and it's such a joy to be able to preach you this morning. We pray for you regularly pray for you weekly. Josh joins us for some staff meetings and it's just so good to see um, his labors and his fruit um, of people coming here and being drawn because we're going to do today what Josh and whoever's up here does every week. We're going to look at the word of God. We're going to try to explain it and apply it to our lives and that's simply what uh, the church and what uh, hopefully Redeeming Grace and uh, South Canyon is going to be about. So hopefully I can do that just as well for you all today. Why don't we just do this uh, in light of the large chunk of text that Josh said I uh, would get to preach this morning. Um, why don't we pray just very quickly and then we'll get started.
Father, we come before a text like this and, oh, we feel just the weightiness of it. And so God, especially for me, I just ask that you would help me declare the truths out of it as Justin prayed as well. Help me to explain it well. Help me to show the wonders in the text. Father, I pray that you would awaken our hearts by the Holy Spirit through that. Lord, help us to not just hear this word, but to be doers of this word as well. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus in this text as well. Help us to know him and to love him more as we study and as we hear it proclaimed. God, we need you in this very hour to help us know who you are. Lord, we gather around your word because we want to know you and we want to hear from you. So, Father, I pray that you would use an empty and broken vessel like me as a trophy of your grace so that the excellencies of who you are might might be known. God, help me. Help us. God, stir in our hearts an affection for you. Stir in our hearts a devotion for you. And stir in our hearts good soil so that we may see a crop 30, 60, 100 fold be produced from your word this day and for all the days that it is preached here at this church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I love starting out sermons with a question, so just something for you to ponder on. What's the most memorable way that someone has shown you that they love you? I'm not going to ask for any examples. I'm not going to make everybody talk or anything like that. But I'm sure if I were to ask you and if I were to bring up five random people from the congregation here this morning, we would get five totally random and different answers, right? I, I can imagine that those times that really stuck out to you, they were completely unique. They couldn't be replicated by anybody else that you knew. It was only unique to you and the person that showed you love. Uh, I have a really good example of this. One time, uh, whenever my wife, Laura, went to go visit her family in Kentucky, whenever we had uh, been here for a few months, and her family is actually here with us uh, this morning, uh, worshiping with us from Kentucky. But anyway, Whenever she went to go visit them in Kentucky, uh, and I think maybe were you telling them that you were pregnant? I think, I think it was. I think we were telling them that. It was good news. So, but she was getting ready to leave, and it was the first time that she was leaving me alone here in South Dakota uh, to go visit her family. But what she did to show me love was that she left me several, and, and several is probably a smaller way of saying a bunch of sweet notes. And it's, it's like, okay, come on, Tanner, like... Everybody's gotten a sweet note from somebody before. But let me tell you why it's so unique. It's not just that these notes were really sweet and they were affectionate and lovey-dovey and all that stuff. What made this gesture of love from Laura to me so unique is that she hid them literally everywhere in the house. I mean, I woke up the next morning to go uh, get some socks and there was a note. I went to go brush my teeth. There was a note by the toothpaste. I went to go heat up my food for lunch later that day, and I opened up the fridge, and sure enough, I don't know how she knew this, I was going to eat that thing that was in the fridge, and there was another note. Literally, she had them all over the place, and they were silly, they were sweet, they ultimately just wanted uh, to get across to the point that she loved me, and that hopefully she wasn't going to forget about me while she was enjoying time with her family in Kentucky. But I think a little bit deeper than that, She wanted to make sure that I didn't forget that I loved her. While 
She had left all these notes to remind me how much she loved me. She wanted me to remember that she loved me. And I couldn't forget about it. They were literally all over the place. Even whenever she came back home, I think I found one. What made that act so sweet, and I think what made this level of love that Laura was wanting to communicate was that she did not want me to forget about her. She did not want me to forget about her love for me. And I think those are those times of love that really stick out into our mind where we remember that those signs of love that have been given to us by others, those are the things that make us feel most loved whenever we realize that we're not forgotten or disregarded, that we're cherished, that we're held close to by that person that we love. Even though it may not seem like it, and even though you're like, what does this have to do with the text? I think this is exactly what is going on in our text this morning. God wants us as readers to see the inexplicable love that he has for those that he's shown favor on, for those that walk in faithful obedience to him. And he wants them to remember that even when it may not feel like that, even when it may look like the complete opposite thing, that maybe he doesn't love me, even when he asks for obedience that seems outlandish and crazy, God is wanting us to know that he loves those that he's covenanted with. That's what we're going to be learning about this morning. So with that said, why don't we just kind of look at this large chunk of text that we have and just kind of break it down in its structure. And then I'm going to share the main idea, I think, of what's going on in our passage this morning. So the structure is, is pretty multifaceted. There's a lot of movements to uh, what's going on this morning. But let me just kind of break this down. So in Genesis 6, 9 through 12, we have a contrast of Noah and the rest of the earth. A contrast of how he acts in obedience and how the rest of the earth is definitely not like that. And you guys learned a lot about that last week. In Genesis 6, 13 through 21, we see these very detailed and crazy, honestly, instructions for the ark. And then in Genesis 6, 22 through 7, 5, we see Noah's response to this command to build this massive boat, essentially, this massive ark uh, for all these animals and for his family. And then in Genesis 7, 6 through 24, we get the account, the actual happenings of the flood event. So we see this is how the flood happened. This is how long it lasted. This is what was going on during that flood. And then in Genesis 8, 1 through 12, we hear about how the flood subsided and kind of the stages of that. And then in Genesis 8, 13 through 19, we hear about how Noah leaves the boat in faith. So with that said, kind of with that structure, kind of helping us think about, okay, these are the different movements. This is kind of the way that Moses is wanting to communicate this. This is what I think the main idea is for this passage this morning. The main idea is this. While our sin deserves nothing less than the flood of God's destruction, the Lord shows covenantal love to those who trust and obey him. I'll say that again, especially if you're a note taker. While our sin deserves nothing less than the flood of God's destruction, the Lord shows covenantal love to those who trust and obey him. We're going to be working through this main idea and this main point in three kind of different movements, different sections. And we're going to be starting with overwhelming judgment, and then the second point will be overwhelming salvation. 
And the third point will be overwhelming love. So let's start with that first point, overwhelming judgment. Often, and I don't know about you guys, this is the way that I kind of come to this text every once in a while, but whenever we read this story of Noah and his family, our minds go to some like brightly painted toy uh, where it's like all these like little cute, chubby, short, stumpy animals. They're getting onto this like really artsy boat and it's really sweet. And, or we're thinking of that VeggieTales episode that I know we've all seen about Noah and the big boat, right? That's kind of where our minds go. I think even in my daughter's room, for like bookends, we have this like really, it's really cute, honestly, this really cute bookend of like the illustration of the animals just getting in the boat. That's what we see. But I think really upon second or third reading of the text that we have this morning, we honestly should feel some like shock and and, and really devastation of what God is planning to do to the earth. And as Josh mentioned last week, and again, as we see this week, Mankind at this point in time in Genesis is so unbelievably vile and corrupt from the pandemic of sin that the only thing that can be done is the necessary purging of evil from the earth. And it's not so long ago, right? We were just a few chapters back where we were hearing how good and how amazing this creation was and how man was with God so intimately. And then Genesis 3 happens, and it has been a downward spiral of mankind. And it has not just been central to the garden, right? It has spread throughout all of mankind, so much so that only violence resides in the hearts of man. We see that in our text this morning. The world is unbelievably wicked. And so the only thing that the Lord can do is to give the judgment to purge away all all of the evil from the earth. And so God, he determines to make an end to the very good creation that he made. But it's not just any sort of end. It's not like a Thanos snap of a finger and he ends the earth. It's not what we read here. It's it's a particular end. It's a flood. A flood so overwhelming and so devastating that all living things... Literally everything upon the earth would be destroyed and die. Animals, reptiles, birds, men, women, all would be destroyed and killed in this catastrophic flood that God would send to the earth. I I want you to just fathom this for a moment. Can you even begin to think or to speculate on what an event like that would be like? I was old enough to remember the events of September 11th, 2001. And I can remember the deep sorrow that I had of seeing so many people die in a single event. And I'm sure maybe some of you in this room, you can remember uh, the events or have been told the events of Pearl Harbor and just the massive loss of life. Maybe for some of us in here, we remember the major tsunami that crashed into Japan and totally devastated Japan. We can remember all those events, and they took so many lives, and yet those events pale in comparison with what is going to come in this flood that God is causing in Noah's day. There are different thoughts and different theories on how many people were actually upon the earth in that time, but the highest estimated value is 750 million people. 750 million And all 750 million of them, except for eight, are going to die as a result of the judgment of God 
upon the people of the earth. Every single living thing would face the condemnation of judgment in this flood. I don't know about you all, but whenever we ponder on this number and on the devastation of death that would have occurred, we become appalled to it. We start to question God. We feel almost a sense of injustice at what the Lord decreed by sending this flood to the people. And yet, I think if we remain and if we camp there, we are very much so, we are missing out on the thrust of what Moses, the writer of this book, is trying to communicate to us as readers. Instead of pondering at the injustice or thinking that maybe God is unfair in what he's doing to purge this evil out, what we ought to feel is the magnitude of God's holiness. It is a holiness that is so overwhelming and so powerful that even the very thought of sin cannot exist in the presence of the Lord. I think that often when we think of God's holiness, there's this certain understanding that we only see evidence of God's holiness by him pouring out his wrath upon the creation. But what I want to do this morning and and what I want you to see instead is to see an event like this and judgment like this as a scene where it's not just God's wrath pouring out on mankind, but rather his overwhelming goodness, his overwhelming holiness being poured out in creation. It is goodness that is so good that not even a little hint of evil can exist in it. And that's what we're seeing. God's goodness overwhelming the earth so that the earth can again be very good. I wonder, do you all think of holiness and specifically God's holiness this way? When you read in your Bible stories like this, does your mind simply just go, okay, God's holiness equals wrath. It equals anger, frustration at his creation. I think, unfortunately, too often, that is exactly where Christians especially are tempted to go. We veer in the direction of the only way that God has to display his holiness is through angry, vengeful wrath. But friends, if we were to boil down holiness as simply hatred towards sin and wrath being poured upon it, I think we would be doing a misjudgment to how we can actually describe God's holiness. And and let me show you just a couple of instances where I think it's characterizing God's holiness a little bit better. Okay, so think of Moses. Whenever he's recalling in Exodus 33, his request to see God's glory, to see his goodness, to see his power, his holiness. And he, he, the Lord tells Moses, he says, I will make all my goodness, in some translations, it's my glory, my holiness, pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord or Yahweh. The very name of himself declares this goodness to Moses, and Moses wants to see this. He wants to see it in its full entirety. It's a really awesome deal. It's a really sweet thing that we see with Noah. But there's a catch, right? Moses is warned and is told by God, you cannot look upon my face unless you die. Friends, what we see here is even in this good request of Moses, that the Lord's holy goodness is so good that if Moses were to even look upon this, he would die. I think another instance that we see this is a place like Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah, he sees a vision of the throne room of God, and he's there, he's taken up, and what's his response? 
It's, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips because I have seen the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is goodness, so good, that all Isaiah desires is a woe. He says, have pity on me, make me clean so I can see this rightly. Who he is in light of God's holiness is so good that he wishes he could be that good and the people that he resides with would be that good, but he can't. And all he asks for is woe upon him. So here's the takeaway. Perhaps instead of feeling like we need to defend God's holiness, when we see God pronounce judgments like this throughout the Bible, and especially here in Genesis 6 where 750 million people would die, Maybe we ought to let God's holiness, his glory, and his goodness do its own thing by just letting it rest upon those who ultimately will face it. At a practical level, this is what this might look like. Whenever you're sharing the gospel, you camp out in one of two areas. You're either going to camp out in the area where you emphasize this holiness, but kind of in the wrong way, where it's only wrath, only judgment, and you deserve hell, you deserve all the condemnation of God, or you you dwell over here on this other side where it's, okay, God is holy, and God really loves you, and he 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 loves you. Friends, there's a tension. We need both. Where do you land in that tension whenever you're trying to make known the glorious truth of the gospel? We have to communicate the correctness, the rightness of God's glory, His goodness. We need to know what God's holiness is. We need to see it played out in the movement of the gospel. We don't want to shy away from God's holiness, but we also don't want to just rush to His love. We need both to share the truth of the gospel. We are going to be talking about God's love later on, but we need to talk about God's holiness. We need to understand and to try to make it known. And we need to give it credence. Because when we do, we find that outside of the grace of Jesus Christ in our own lives, we stand just as condemned as those 750 million people in Noah's day. We, too, would fall under the same judgment of evil and of condemnation that would utterly destroy us in the face of our overwhelmingly holy God. Which is why in light of this overwhelming judgment, we need just as equal salvation. And this brings us to our second point, overwhelming salvation. Overwhelming salvation. So again, in light of the magnitude of the judgment that is being pronounced on the rest of the earth, we should not be surprised that the salvation that the Lord provides for Noah and his family is just as overwhelming I mean, think about it. Can you imagine Noah being told, this is what's going to happen. Everyone on the face of the earth, every living thing will be blotted out, but you and eight people are going to live. I can imagine that if we were in Noah's shoes, we'd say, okay, well, how's that going to happen? Well, he gives it to him. He says, you're going to create this huge boat. And it's like, what? A boat? You think that's just going to like fix everything? But I mean, look at the size of this boat. It's insanely large. It's unlike any other vessel that has ever been created. There's some aircraft carriers that are apparently bigger than this, but I'm telling you what this boat did and what it could do is unbelievable. It's at 510 feet in length, 
with the capacity, according to answers in Genesis, to place about 450 semi-truck trailers inside of it. And it would have absolutely stuck out like a sore thumb as Moses, as Moses was erecting it. Can you imagine as he's like trying to carry the wood and stuff like that to, to the boat? His friends are like, what in the world are you doing, man? You're cutting down these huge trees. How are you building all this? What are you doing? And he's like, I'm just building an ark. There's a flood coming. But it's just massive because I'm sure as he was carrying that wood, he's saying, you need to help me get, build this boat. There's a flood coming. The overwhelming judgment of God is coming for you. They're like, you're just building a boat. But this boat is massive. It is a massive sign of God's salvation. But aside from the massive size of the boat, which is where I can camp on for a really long time, obviously, I want us to think about two different things in this section. The first thing I want us to think about is first, the builder of the boat. So it's obvious from the outset that Noah is not like the rest of the people of the earth. I I love the way that uh, verse, um, yeah, it's verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. And Noah was, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. It's almost as if Moses is kind of being humorous here. He's saying, in light of the section that you guys just heard from last week, he's saying, the earth is really bad. But Noah, he was blameless in light of his generation, right? Like maybe Noah wasn't the most perfect thing, but he was blameless in comparison to the rest of the generation that he was living in. So it's obvious that he's just not like anybody else within this generation, And as we see this week, we get a brief look at why he was so different. In verse 9, we see that Noah is a man who is described as blameless before God and that he walked with God. So if Moses is the only one who's blameless and walked with God, it's, it's totally the opposite of everybody else that's in existence on the earth at this point in time. Moses is clearly trying to show us as the readers of Genesis this crazy contrast between Noah and the rest of the people. If Noah is obeying the Lord, hearing from the Lord, walking with the Lord day by day, then every person aside from Noah is doing the exact opposite. And this is a really unique attribute of Noah. We don't hear this about Shem, Ham, and Japheth or any of the wives of those men. This is a completely unique attribute to Noah. Noah's walking with the Lord, his obedience. In 6.22, it says, Noah obeys the Lord's enormous command to build this monstrosity of, a, of an ark. In 7.5, Noah obeys again when he's told to get in the boat. In 7.16, Moses again makes mention that Noah obeyed the Lord as he got all the animals into the boat. In 8.18, again, we see Noah's obedience when the Lord tells him to leave the boat over and over and over again, what we should see is Noah's everyday faithful walking with the Lord resulting in obedience. And I think the question that we ought to be thinking about, especially as you guys have been studying the book of Genesis, the question that should be popping in our mind should be this. Is this the better Adam? Is this the one that the Lord is setting apart to crush the head of the serpent? Is this the one who is going to spread the Lord's dominion, his glory, and his image properly across the world? Is this the new Adam? Well, you're going to have to find out next week. So make sure you come back next week to hear uh, from whoever's preaching. But for now, things do seem to be trending 
in the direction that the Lord is going to use Noah as this new character, this new Adam that should restore the very goodness of the Lord within the earth. This seems especially plausible uh, considering as well that the Lord is going to have him take two of every kind of animal on the earth. There's a reason why it's two of every animal, right? It's because he's wanting to restart the creation. Noah is going to be this new Adam figure, and we're going to find out next week whether or not if Noah is that person. But I think something that should not be overlooked when we're reading the story of Noah is exactly what I was trying to highlight a moment ago. Noah's obedience is unbelievably commendable. I mean, in that whole passage that we read together, that Sarah read, not once do we ever see him question the Lord or really even talk. And I don't know if Moses made that purposeful, but I don't know about you all, but if I was in that situation, I would say, how, how long do you want me to make this boat? Also, I've never built anything with my hands that has actually lasted more than a day. Um, but for Noah, it was no questions asked. He's doing it. Obedience. I think something that we should see and highlight is that more than likely for Noah, this lifestyle of obedience was there day by day by day. He walked with the Lord, and thus any time the Lord asked him to do anything, obedience was his reflex. Recently in our TPA program, which is this Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship Program, which Stephen uh, was doing with us at South Canyon and it's something that we partner with in Redeeming Grace as well. We've been recently reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and I love this book. I've probably read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe probably five or six times now. But one thing that has really just stuck out to me recently is just how much I love C.S. Lewis's contrast of Edmund and Peter. So we have Edmund Pevensey. He is this rebellious, bitter, angry, betraying person against Aslan and his siblings, he just is so like vile. And then we have Peter, his older brother. Peter is always obedient, always faithful, never questioning what Aslan is saying. He never wants, as we see, questions the requests of this lion. But I think what we're supposed to see here is this is a model of somebody who trusts in Aslan. And, and so for the students or for the kids in the room, I want you guys to hear this. Take note of Noah. He, he's like Peter Pevensey, but way better. And I'll tell you why he's so much better. The reason that he's so much better is because he's been cultivated a heart in his life to continually walk with the Lord. It's something that he's focused on every single day. And, and so I hope you understand and I hope you all see that the reason that maybe your mom and dad want you to make your bed every single day or they want you to take out the trash, or perhaps do that thing that you don't enjoy doing that much, the reason that they're having you do that is because they want you to become robots. <laughs> no, that's not it at all. The Lord is not having your parents urge you in obedience, hopefully as they're walking with the Lord and asking of you to do obedient things in the name of the Lord. They're not asking you to become just robotic taskmasters and task finishers. No, what they're trying to cultivate in you is a heart and a reflex of obedience. In that way, they're wanting you to one day, if and when, Lord willing, that he calls you to follow him, your reflex is, yes, I'm going to go do that. Because 
I know, like my parents, God has good for me. He knows my best interests in mind. Take note of Noah. Because Noah lived a lifestyle of obedience. Not for the sake of just being a robot that is just wanting to get things done for God. No, because he trusted the Lord. He trusted the object of his faith. Kids, I would encourage you, if that's something that you want to think about, is how can you be obedient to the Lord? Go talk to your parents. Come talk to me. I'd love to share the glories and the realities of that. But, in fact, it is Noah's obedience that is highlighted within this term of this agreement between him and the Lord. And it's this thing that we see for the very first time, at least explicitly, in the Bible, is this thing called a covenant. We find this word covenant in Genesis 6.18. I'd say it in Hebrew, but I would totally butcher the pronunciation of it. But this covenant, this agreement, is a bilateral covenant between him and God. And essentially what a bilateral covenant is, is that if Noah obeys the Lord's commands then God will make good on his end of the covenant by letting Noah and his family live. Because while Noah is described as blameless in the text, we aren't exactly sure if maybe he's innocent, right? He's still from the line of Adam. He's still got that same blood that rebelled against God in his veins. But if Noah is to be this new Adam... For the restart of creation, his obedience is paramount to the evidence of his faith in God and this promise of living by building the ark and getting into it. Friends, I hope you're hearing what's been a a theme and an echo throughout all the book of Genesis and really throughout all the book of the Bible. This should take us back to the garden. It should take us back to Adam and Eve. Obey, believe, obey, and live. Believe, obey, and and live or disobey and die. And so far, what we see with Noah is he has obeyed. I think the second thing that we ought to see in this overwhelming salvation is, secondly, the the safety of the boat. So we just looked at the builder of the boat, so let's talk about the safety of this vessel, the safety of the boat. As we see in 7.6, at the youthful age of 600 years old, the flood finally arrives. And it's, it's really, honestly, it's kind of humorous to see how Moses describes the day on which this flood happened in Noah's life. He says in verse 711, he says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundation, all the, excuse me, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. I think Moses is being very particular with the date, with the time that this happened. Because many people, they want to allegorize or they want to make a metaphor out of this event and and kind of claim that there's no way that a flood of this magnitude could have ever really happened. But Moses, in his writing here, he goes to painstaking efforts to talk about an actual day in history that the flood event occurred. And then for 40 days and for 40 nights, it rained. And I mean, it wasn't just like a little rainstorm that like I play on my phone to make sure I can like fall asleep. It's not that kind of rainstorm. I mean, we are talking about a deluge of water. It was a fierce rain with waters coming up from the deep. So not only was it like just crazy pouring down, it was 
bursting up from the ground. Water everywhere. I, it kind of reminds me of that scene in Forrest Gump. Sometimes it rained sideways. Sometimes it rained straight down. Sometimes it was coming up at me. It rained so heavily like that for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, can you even imagine this? 40 days and 40 nights of intense torrential downpour and water just springing up, rushing, flooding the earth, and rushing so quickly that it's carrying people away and taking their possessions, and it's taking them under and leading them to their watery death. As I stated earlier, it's, it's obvious that Noah was a great man of faithful obedience, but I'm telling you, if I saw water coming up like that, I'd probably want to run to a big ark too, but I... But for Noah, it wasn't even that. He, I think he probably saw one drop of rain, and he was like, okay, I'm out. And he went to the boat because he was so obedient. But this was so much water. For 40 days and 40 nights, it was so much, so much torrential water around the ark that even the mountains of the earth were covered up by the end of it. And yet, even in all the torrential downpour, the Lord provided a way of salvation for Noah and his family. I think it's one of the sweetest things about this passage. God doesn't just declare judgment, but he says, I'm going to make a way for you and your family to be able to live through this judgment. So friends, while Noah may have built the ark, it was the Lord who ultimately called Noah to go to the ark. It was the Lord who brought all those animals to the ark. And it was the Lord who shut the door of the ark. Noah did not. While the judgment of the earth was catastrophic and overwhelmingly deserved by the people of mankind, the Lord's salvation of Noah and his family is just as overwhelming. We should see this ark, this boat, this massive structure as a sign of the Lord's goodness and his salvation. Christian, I, I want to ask you a question. Do you think of your salvation in the same terms, in the same regard? Do you rejoice and proclaim the very wonder that you deserve the just wrath of God, and yet you were given a salvation that was greater by the hand of the Lord. One of my favorite songs, it says, Our sin was great, but Jesus is stronger. This is what we see in our salvation. Yes, the condemnation, the judgment, the wrath that we deserved was great, but Jesus was greater. Or, do you often find yourself more pondering on the flood of judgment that could still be coming for you? Like, walking, tiptoe, wondering if you're going to please God or not in your salvation. Friends, there's a reason that this story is called Noah and the Ark. It's never called Noah and the Flood. It's called Noah and the Ark because what we're seeing is Noah's faith and then the means of that faith being resulted in a salvation, right? It's not something that we just want to ponder on. Wow, look at the terribleness and the awfulness of this flood. No, it's look at this man of faith and the way of salvation that was provided to him by the Lord. This is what we ought to ponder on even in our salvation. Not, wow, look at all the sin that God saved me from, but rather, wow, look at the God who saved me. Friends, salvation from the Lord is not meant for us to fall back into wondering what judgment we might face from God. Friend, if you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart and have repented from your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, you no longer have the fear to wonder if God's judgment is going to be upon you. It has come upon His own Son. You no longer have to worry about His hand smiting you in judgment, giving you a flood of condemnation. Our salvation from sin and death is meant to drive us to rejoice to know that we are safe 
in the arms of the very one we once rebelled against. Don't look at your sin. Look at the Father that has saved you from your sin and has brought you out of darkness and into his glorious light. I can imagine that, yes, there were times when Noah would look back on the flood while he was on the ark, and I bet he would get scared and it would make the hairs on his neck stand up, but I bet even more so, he would look back on the fact that he was safe and dry in this ark and that he was alive. And I imagine that he talked about how thankful he was to be on that ark. One of the things that I loved in Justin's prayer this morning is that I know Redeeming Grace Church and I know South Canyon wants this as well. We want to be churches of thankfulness. And one of the ways that we proclaim that thankfulness is by praising the Lord for his salvation. Friends, whenever you sing songs like Behold Our God and we hear about Christ's resurrection from the tomb and and how he's brought us out of life into death, does that make your heart well up within you with joy? Does that make you thankful to the Lord? This is exactly what Noah was doing. He was thankful to the Lord. And he did so, even with the stench of a bunch of stinky animals around him. So often, brothers and sisters, we will get in some sort of predicament or situation that is unpleasant, like Noah being around a bunch of stinky animals. And, and, and we get into those situations and, and times and we think maybe the Lord is, is judging us. Maybe he's punishing us for something that we, we've done or something we've said or thought. But friends, I want to encourage you. When those times are near or when you find yourself in them, think of the ways that you can rejoice and be thankful in the Lord for your salvation and what he's given you. Friends, a result of the fall is that we have these trials, we have these troubles, we suffer but we have a God who is with us and keeps us safe in his arms. And whenever we do that, whenever we look upon the greatness of God's salvation in the earth, we can rest in knowing that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Friend, one of the reasons I think that Josh has you share your testimonies and membership interviews and hopefully at your family meetings as well, one of the reasons that you guys do that is because he wants you to delight in how God has saved needy sinners into the hands of our gracious and loving God. And I, friend, I can assure you that the more that you rejoice in those things and the more that you take delight in recalling your own salvation from the Lord, the more that whenever those things are happening to you, but you've got your eyes on what the Lord has given you in salvation, all those things, they're dim. The waves of suffering, the waves of sorrow can come upon us, but we look to the Lord just like Noah did in his day. Verses 23 and 24 in chapter 7, they provide a good transition point to our story and to the sermon as well. Um, But it says in verse 23 of chapter 7, he says, He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This brings us to our third and final point, overwhelming love. As we get into this point in the story, the question that now arises, as we've heard what we just heard in chapter 7, the question is this, is God going to uphold his terms of the covenant with Noah? Up to now, Noah has been obedient in every single thing that the Lord has called him to. Is is the Lord going to be faithful? Do you guys feel that tension after chapter 7 gets finished? 
we hear obey and live, obey and live. Is Noah going to get to live even despite being on the boat? Is the Lord going to hear the prayer? And I think it's so sweet what we read in 8.1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. 150 days have passed. Almost five months of being in the boat without any sort of sign that waters will subside. Will the Lord keep his covenantal promise? Since Noah has obeyed, will he get to live? And then, like the dawn, after a dark night, we read in 8.1, but God remembered Noah. The Lord remembered God would not forget his covenant with Noah. God would not forget the love that he had set upon Noah and on his family. The theme of this whole passage that we've read is that God, yes, he is indeed faithful, but yes, even more than that, he loves those that he has set apart for salvation. He loves those that he is in covenant relationship with. And just like the love that God has for us, God's love for Noah is seen by God's actions toward Noah. We see this wind make the water abate. And I think Moses is doing a little wordplay here. That word for wind is the word ruah, which is the word that the New Testament authors will pick up on to talk about the Holy Spirit. I think there's a little uh, deeper theological thing that we don't have a whole lot of time to get into, but I think there's some life there that God is breathing life into this new creation, just like he did in Genesis 1. But we see these actions, these pieces of love toward Noah and his family. The water recedes, the bird comes back, with an olive leaf, and then the bird does not return. And then the culmination of it all, of God's love toward Noah, the Lord calls Noah to get off the ark. Oh man, with these signs of love, I can imagine it's all Noah can do to just hop off that ark and just run and kiss the dry ground. It's either that or the stench, we're not really sure. But, but I tend to think it, it wasn't just a stench, but it was the many years of love and devotion that God had for Noah finally being culminated in Noah's faithful obedience to hop off the ark. God's sign of love resulted in Noah's utter devotion to get off the ark and to do whatever the Lord commanded him. My friend, if you're here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, and you're wondering the question, does God love me? After all I've done, after everything I've said, after who I've been, can God love me? Let me tell you this. Yes. Yes, he can, and yes, he does. And let me tell you how I know. Like those who died in the flood, you and I, we deserve that same condemnation and judgment and wrath for our sin against this God. And this time, there's no flood, and there's nothing that we could do, no ark we can build that we can, that we can save us from ourselves. There's nothing we can do to relieve ourselves of this condemnation that the Lord is going to give. And yet, the Lord shows His love to us by sending His Son, His only Son, Jesus, God the Son incarnate in human flesh to live the life of obedience that you and I could not live. 
And then this Jesus, he not only lived this life of perfect obedience that you and I have failed to live, he died a death that we deserve, taking upon that punishment, that wrath, that condemnation of God, that flood of wrath from God the Father on his own shoulders so that we wouldn't have to bear that penalty. And not And that's a great sign of love that Jesus died for us while we were sinners. But even more than that, he raised Jesus up three days later, defeating sin and death forever for those who would place their faith in him and those that would repent of their sins. Friends, Jesus does love you. God does love you. He calls you now to believe, obey, and live. It's as exactly as Paul said in his letter to the Romans. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Friends, God sent his son Jesus to prove to you that yes, he does love you. Believe, obey, and live. My friend, God's love for you is so overwhelming. And he isn't saving you from an earthly flood now. He is saving you from the destruction that you have paved out for yourself in your own sin. But now he is inviting you this day, this very day, to believe in the realities of what I just talked about and what I proclaimed. He wants you to place your faith and the whole trust of yourself into his son, Jesus. And he's calling you to repent of your sin and to submit yourself in humble, faithful obedience, just like Noah did in his day. He's calling you to do this now and to do it for the rest of your life. And he's not calling you into a restart of creation. He is calling you into new creation into a new creation that will happen whenever his son returns. So my friend, it is a resounding yes, 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 that Jesus loves you. And perhaps he has you here today so that you might know that love. I would argue that from what I see in scripture that God's heart for mankind, it is love. He loves that his image is on those human beings. He doesn't wish that any would perish. And yet, while God is fully loving, he is also fully just and fully good. And he will deal with you according to whether or not you have obeyed this call to obey, believe, and live. Again, what we ought to hear in this passage this morning and what we ought to have heard in the garden and with Noah and now to us is the same call that has been true throughout all eternity. Believe, obey, and live. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by your love. God, I think about the writer that says, if anyone could stand before you, or if anybody stood up against your law, who could stand? And Lord, we realize that not a single one of us could. And the judgment is fierce and overwhelming. And yet, at the same time, Lord, your love for us is overwhelming. Your covenant with those whom you have shown favor on is overwhelming. Lord, our salvation is overwhelming. So Father, I pray that for anybody here who would not 
yet know that love, that they would talk to somebody, that they would talk to that friend that brought them here, that they would talk to Justin or to me or to anybody in this church to talk about the realities of your love for them. And God, I pray that as we think about that love, that it would drive us toward obedience and even obedience in the things that might seem questionable and hard. God, help us to obey you, not out of wanting to please you, but Lord, out of love for you because you have first loved us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.